I do think there was not an interest in studying sickle cell uh, because it's a disease that primarily affects African Americans and poor people. And quite frankly, the empathy for their disease has been lacking. She describes it as someone taking a hammer to wherever the pain is and just continuously just hammering at it. There's study after study that shows if you've got diversity of experience, diversity of background, it uh, dramatically increases the innovation. But we do focus on getting the best chemists, the best biologists, the best at everything, and that's results in a company that's more than 50% people of color. I remember when the drug got approved and everyone was excited. And it does my heart good to know that there's a company that exists solely to make sure my kids are okay. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Jim Greenwood, and you're listening to I Am Bio. Malaria is one of the human race's oldest and deadliest diseases. Every year it kills a million children across the globe. The parasite that originally caused the disease has been around for more than 100,000 years, giving natural selection lots of time to fight back. In regions like sub-Saharan Africa, where malaria is endemic, the evolutionary response to this disease was the sickling of red blood cells into a sword shape which confers resistance to malaria. Most people who are born with a sickle cell trait don't even know they have it. And why would they? They're healthy, and their hemoglobin is doing its job. It's carrying oxygen to different parts of the body. But those born with actual sickle cell disease face a difficult and uncertain future. A shortened life expectancy due to multi-organ failure, excruciating pain episodes, acute chest syndrome, jaundice, strokes. So if you don't know much about sickle cell disease, please stay tuned. We're going to explore an amazing biotech breakthrough for sickle cell disease in this episode. But that's not all we're going to do. We're also going to discuss the reality of racism in our healthcare system and the plight of patients who are routinely denied access to adequate care by emergency room personnel and state Medicaid officials. For decades, modern medicine produced very little in the way of new drugs to help those living with sickle cell disease. And tragically, it was for lack of trying. Thanks to biotechnology, all of that changed. It changed after a small group of committed scientists, clinicians, and researchers showed what's possible when we see each other simply as fellow human beings. Last November, the FDA approved the first drug to attack the underlying cause of sickle cell disease. It's a monumental achievement for the team at Global Blood Therapeutics and a shining example of what our industry can accomplish when we operationalize diversity and inclusion strategies inside our companies. It was GBT, a company with more women than men, a company where minorities comprise the majority of the workforce, that finally delivered the breakthrough for this devastating disease that has long plagued communities of color. But innovation is only half the battle. Education is the rest. Here in GBT, 
it helps that the staff reflects the community they're seeking to serve with this medicine. As a result, the company has built a reputation as a caring, honest broker, able to educate providers and reassure patients who may have been treated unsympathetically in the past when seeking care. I can't think of a biotech CEO who better embodies our industry's inclusive vision than our guest this week. His diverse company earned regulatory approval for its sickle cell drug, Oxbrita, on its very first attempt, and three months ahead of schedule. As we say at Bio, when it comes to successful innovation, the right mix matters. It's my pleasure to be joined by one of the most respected leaders in the biotechnology industry, Ted Love, the CEO of Global Blood Therapeutics. His company recently became the first to commercialize a treatment attacking the underlying cause of sickle cell anemia. So congratulations, Ted, on this historic achievement, and welcome to I Am Bio. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. So in November, the FDA granted accelerated approval to your company's breakthrough for sickle cell anemia for kids uh, 12 years old and people older than that. So start by talking about blood sickling and how sickle cell anemia got that name. Sickle cell uh, got that name because if you look at the red blood cells under the microscope, they look sickled like a sickled moon. And the reason uh, they look this way is because the cells, red cells normally contain hemoglobin, and normally that hemoglobin is soluble like sugar and water. In sickle cell disease, the mutation on the hemoglobin causes it to come out of solution like sugar crystals coming out of solution and organizing into rods. Those rods uh, change the shape of the red cell. Like if you if you put a sword inside of a balloon, uh, the balloon would, would be a pretty good trick. Look, look like a sword. Right. If you if, if you didn't, that's what's happening is mm-hmm. that you're forming these rods. Those rods are killing the red cells, and that's what causes the anemia. And the chronic anemia leads to premature death due to multi organ failure. Uh, so it's a fairly straightforward disease in terms of its molecular physiology, but it's a devastating disease. And the way it clinically manifests is, is, is very broad. It can be pain episodes. It can be dactylitis uh, in children, the swelling of, of hands and feet. Uh, it can be splenic sequestration, which is uh, often fatal. Uh, it can be acute chest syndrome. There are many, many manifestations of disease. But at, at its molecular level, it's this uh, polymerization or sticking together of the hemoglobin inside the red cell. So how many people in the U.S. roughly do you think suffer from this disease? Approximately 107,000. If you look on a global level, the number becomes millions, probably in the range of 15 million. And as you've uh, already alluded to, many of those individuals are concentrated in areas of the world where Malaria was in endemic, so uh, the sub-Sahara, uh, India, um, uh, uh, some of Brazil. Uh, there, there are many places around the world that have large populations, but it really has mimicked the presence of malaria. So for those people, let's just talk about the U.S. population right now, that 100,000 plus. Um, and you touched upon some of this, but their life is pretty tough because they have these um, breakouts of pain. Many times they end up in the ER, um, unable to work, and shortened lifespans, shortened um, economic capacity. 
It's it's a devastating disease, and and um, it's certainly been characterized in the media as a disease of pain, uh, and it certainly is a disease of pain. But it's it's much more than that, and I'll give you some statistics to put things into perspective. Roughly a third of sickle cell disease children by their 10th birthday will have had silent ischemic brain injury. Um, so even in the first decade of life, you're accumulating things in your body that are going to change the course of your life. Does that cause any cognitive deficiencies as a result of that? Oh. It absolutely does. Every silent infarct uh, uh, is associated with about 10 points loss in IQ. Wow. Uh, so if you have children that are going through this in the first decade of life, uh, those children never have a they never have a normal shot at life. Mm. Uh, approximately twenty percent of sickle cell patients will have had an overt stroke uh, by their twentieth birthday. Uh, so this is a devastating disease. The brain is particularly an interesting organ to talk about, but all the organs in the body are enduring the same kind of tragic loss because this is a blood disorder and our blood is vital for providing nutrients and oxygen to all of our tissues. So the brain, while it is uh, a useful marker uh, to discuss, uh, it really reflects what's going on in the kidney, the heart, all of the organs are suffering from this disease. Not much research had been done on this disease over decades, uh, in part because of the, it was before the Orphan Drug Act, and so there just was not the financial incentive for anybody to, to invest in trying to come up with a treatment for this disease. Then along came the Orphan Drug Act, which um, was a, a great thing that Congress did because it really inspired a whole lot of investment in a, whole, in a great number of, of diseases that affect smaller populations, but still, still not so much in sickle cell. And why is that, do you think? I do think there was not an interest in studying sickle cell uh, because it's a disease that primarily affects African-Americans and poor people. By the way, since this is a podcast, people can't tell, but Ted is an African-American. And in fact, that's part of the reason that I came right. to work on this problem. I, I felt that uh, as a physician who had seen this hospital, when, seen this in the hospital when I was training at Yale and later with the Mass General, I had seen how these patients had been treated. And you could feel, uh, quite frankly, Jim, the discrimination against these patients. And we didn't have a lot to offer them uh, therapeutically either. So not only were they being insulted, uh, they actually um, were suffering without much being provided to them because we just didn't have very much. So the idea of being part of a solution and actually helping these patients was extraordinarily exciting to me. And I've heard that... Um Patients who have this pain come to the hospitals or the doctors looking for pain medication, and some of them are just accused of being drug addicts looking to, to get pain medicine. Isn't that another insult that these patients have experienced? It, it, it is indeed, and, in, and the opioid epidemic has made things worse. Um, and if you look at the facts in sickle cell disease, and we've published some of these facts, uh, the rate of addiction to... Narcotics is lower in the sickle cell community than it is in the physician community. Mm. Put it into perspective. Uh, the rate of death from opioid overdose is about one-tenth the rate in the general community. So these people, there's very little data uh, to back up this 
uh, myth that they are drug seekers and they're addicts. Of course, you always have exceptions, Jim, but in totality, uh, this is a, a group of patients that has extreme suffering. And quite frankly, the empathy for their disease has been lacking. So you had a successful, long and successful career in biotech. You were Gen Genentech, and, and uh, I think it was your first company and, other, and elsewhere. And then you basically retired. What caused you to decide, I'm going to unretire myself and go do this? Well, when I was retired, I was mostly sitting on boards uh, and um, uh, in, still involved, but not on an everyday basis. And that was my intent because, quite frankly, my career has been very intense with a lot of uh, family sacrifice. So my, my retirement was really to focus on my family. Uh, ironically, when I explained to my wife and daughters um, this opportunity to join GBT, my daughters actually quickly said, Dad, you've got to do this. Mm. You've got to do this because, number one, you're tired of having you around the house. Well, that was that was possibly <laughs> part of it. I, I can't lie. That could have been part of it. But I do think that they also felt me doing something to affect the African-American community uh, and particularly this group of patients that had been ignored for too long. And that's really my background is mm -hmm. drug development. Um, I mean, obviously, I've been a CEO for many, many years now, but bringing not only passion, but experience and expertise to try to get this drug approved quickly was something that my family felt I should dedicate myself to. So I, I know a little bit about this disease in that I know that it had its origins in the African continent because it actually provided a benefit in terms of evolutionary processes um, to, as protection against malaria. So talk a little bit about the history of the evolutionary history, if you will, of the disease. And, and then uh, uh, I assume it is fundamentally found in the African-American African population here and in the African continent. Uh, all of that is correct, Jim. So malaria is um, due to a parasite that infects the red cell. And the parasite can only survive if it's able to live inside the red cell for a fixed period of time. In sickle cell trait, having half of the hemoglobin, uh, be sickle hemoglobin, creates a red cell which will essentially commit suicide before the parasite can develop. So that's how you get the protection from sickle cell disease. But the genetics are such that if two individuals with sickle trait who uh, have protection against malaria have four children, one of their children will have sickle cell disease, one of their children will have uh, uh, AA or normal hemoglobin, uh, and two of their children will have several trait. So the genetics work out desirable, but unfortunately, the kid born with two SS genes will have sickle cell disease. And that child is essentially nature's sacrifice. Uh, that child has no protection from malaria and unfortunately has the consequence of sickle cell disease as well. The four children that Ted mentioned, of course, were only hypothetical and based on averages to make a point about how the genetics play out with this disease. In real life, each time two parents with a sickle cell trait reproduce, there's a 25% chance the child will be born with sickle cell disease. The fact is not always well understood in the community, but you can be sure that Mapillar Don knows. 
She has dedicated her life to sickle cell education and awareness. Mapiller has three daughters. She and the dad both have the sickle cell trait. You'd have to dust off a high school math textbook and find the chapter on probabilities to discover how to calculate the odds of hitting that 25% chance with all three of your kids. And so we did just that. The probability of having three daughters with sickle cell disease is 1.6%. Mapiller Don is from Atlanta, Georgia. She's the mother of three beautiful daughters and president of the MTS Sickle Cell Foundation. Welcome to Iron Bio. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Tell us about your courageous family and what the MTS in your foundation name stands for. Where did you get that name, MTS? MTS stands for My Three Sicklers. So my three daughters are the inspiration for what I do in, in terms of sickle cell advocacy and um, just trying to be a source of support to families. Tell me about each of your daughters, their age, and their experience of this disease. How long do we have? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think what's interesting about my family is it, it just shows you that sickle cell disease affects everyone differently. And I think it's, it's, it's an important distinction to, for people to understand, especially decision makers. So I have three daughters. Uh, the oldest is 16. Her name is Amatula. We call her Tuli. Tuli is, she's very athletic. Um, she taught herself gymnastics. She, she loves to step. She's been in the band. She plays the trumpet. And as far as sickle cell, um, she's the only one of my three daughters who's ever had a pain crisis. When did you know that Tully had sickle cell anemia? Well, through newborn, newborn screening, picked, um, was able to catch all of them. Oh, right so, away. So, yeah, right away. Had you known people either from your native country of Liberia or other friends or neighbors associates that experienced this disease? When I was in high school, I found out that I have the sickle cell trait. Mm -hmm. Even though I knew, oh, I have the sickle cell trait, I never understood what that meant. Mm -hmm. Even when I was pregnant, I didn't understand what that meant. But once I got that diagnosis for Tuli, by then I knew people, at least one person with sickle cell disease. Hers was really severe. She's always in the hospital. And that was my reaction. Oh, my gosh, my daughter's going to be in the hospital all the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a terrible feeling. It is. It, yeah. it really is. There's a mis misconception in the, the... It exists in the community, believe it or not, and outside of the sickle cell community, that sickle cell skips generation. And that was the the mindset that their father had, because his parents had five kids, but mm -hmm. only one had the disease. So let's get back to Tuli. So yeah, Tuli is, um, she's the only one that has the crises. And uh, of course, one crisis is one too many. But And describe um, her crisis. She describes it as someone taking a hammer to wherever the pain is and just continuously just hammering at it. And that can be and in various places on her body? Um, various places, typically in her legs, but she's had it in her back, in her butt, in her arms. I remember the last episode, she couldn't put her arms down. It was like a weight. And, you know, just for Tuli, when she's having a crisis, um, it can take anywhere from a week or a little more 
go into the hospital because almost always it turns into acute chest syndrome, and we have to deal with that even after the pain is gone. And she's she um, she has jaundice quite a bit uh, sometimes, and mm. that's something that makes her feel self-conscious, sure, you know, especially sure. friends in school asking her. But um, for us as a family, we've always been really um, educational about mm-hmm. this disease. I remember um, I always try to meet with their teachers and even close friends just to, you know, break the ice. We'll tell them what sickle cell is and beforehand just let them know. Sometimes you may see Tuli's eyes are yellow and explain what that is. And um, if you guys could just look out, like encourage Tuli to stay hydrated because that's really important for her. Um, just things like that. And it's it's amazing because her circle of friends from elementary school, they always come through. Tuli, have you had your water today? You know, in oh, school, walking around. Um, they have a community of people looking out for them. Mm-hmm. I think this is a good time to go into Deej. Deej is 14, going on to 40. We say she's the most affected by sickle cell because while she's never had any pain crises, she, when she was seven, she had a stroke. And she had the stroke at school. And because nobody knew what to expect, um, her teacher saw that she was scribbling with her left hand and she, it didn't even um, dawn on her that something could be happening. But basically the stroke happened on her on her right side she was right-handed so right hand stopped working she you know she was trying to adapt and so so that taught me that I never want to be complacent because before she had the stroke everything was okay um my mom lives with me so i she's my rock she's really why i do she's my backbone she's the reason why it's possible for me to do what i do um yeah. And so I, I, I said, Mom, I think Deej had a stroke. She said, you know, why would you say that? So I explained everything. Um, I didn't want to just go to any hospital because something that I knew was as far as sickle cell is concerned, you need to have some kind of referral. So I was waiting for that card to go to, you know, find a primary care physician who's going to give us a referral into the sickle cell clinic. So because I didn't have Medicaid, I decided to call the ambulance. And I told them, I said, listen, I think my daughter had a stroke, but I don't just want to walk in there and say my daughter had a stroke. If Mm -hmm. you guys can just take me, um, because then I was hoping they will have to take me because emergency took us. And got to the hospital, they verified that she did indeed have a stroke. And what I will say is that Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, they banded around our family. And by the time we were out of there, they had everything worked out and all of the girls had their, their insurance. So let's go to your third daughter. Yes. So Hadger, um, Hadger is pretty asymptomatic. And how old is she? She Hadger is 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's never had any pain crises. She's never had a stroke, thank God. So outside of getting the diagnosis, she's pretty asymptomatic. But I wanted to go over what happened with Deej when she had the stroke because um, it wiped her out completely academically. She went from being on honor roll and um, having full mobility to 
really having to struggle to get back, you know, um, her mobility. Uh, she went from honor roll to after school remediation. So mom summer is school. thinking, does she have permanent brain damage? Well, at the time, yeah. there was a whole lot of damage. Right. But fast forward to now, she's in high school. She's back on the honor roll. Awesome. She is... If you saw Deej walking, you wouldn't know that she used to limp. And um, But she's, I don't want to say she's fully recovered because you never know what's going on in there. Mm-hmm. But she has, ta- she has done such a wonderful job bouncing back, you know. And I wanted to say that because it's important for me, it's important for her when I tell her story that I say that. To show the resilience and the hard work that she's put mm-hmm. into it, and of course, well, it's it sounds been... like three generations of strong women. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and so the the monthly blood transfusions that she's had since then have been really helpful in preventing another stroke. She hasn't had another one. I wear many hats. Um, I'm mommy in chief to my three daughters, but I'm also a listening ear to other sickle cell patients mm-hmm. or their caregivers in your spare time. Yes. When you don't have two daughters um, in the hospital. Sometimes all at once. (laughs) You'll be surprised. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, I know of situations where, you know, patients are discriminated against being told, oh, you're back. Um, You were just here. Or there's no reason why you should be in pain. Your numbers are good. Um, Because it's so much fun to pretend you're in pain and go to the hospital, right? And sometimes what what happens is our um, sickle cell patients go into the hospital with pain, and the the doctors are not listening to them. Because if you have a chronic condition and something that you've had to deal with all your life, um, you know what works for you. But in the medical community, that's seen as, oh, you know what works for you? That doesn't work. Yeah, so this is your, your drug of choice, daughter? huh? Yeah. yeah. So um, they, they, take, they take everything and, and pervert it in mm. a way. And so sometimes, you know, they do the very bare minimum. I've heard that patients want to put on their best clothing. So <clears throat> because if they show up in a sweatsuit or something, for some reason, that's going to make them more... The, the medical personnel more suspicious that this is just uh, somebody looking for to yes. get high or something like that. Yes, I've I've heard of that too. Mm. And just you know, sometimes they see you not screaming and at the top of your lungs, treat me, treat me. They see that as, or if you're on your phone, oh, if you're on your phone, you cannot be in pain. And these are people who are so used to the pain. They you have, they have various coping mechanisms right. psychologically. Maybe they maybe they're on the phone talking because it's a way to to distract them from the exactly. pain that they feel. Right. The patients, a lot of times, are not even fully prepared to go home, and they'll say something like, "Oh, um, yeah, just go home. If you're still sick, come back." Well, when they come back, that's not a good look. Because right. they're like, yeah. you were just here or you were just at the other mm-hmm. hospital, which a lot of patients have to do. If they're not getting the the level of care that they're hoping to get one place, they're going to go somewhere else. But there's notations in their records. But, yeah, there's a whole lot of stigma, uh, stigmatization that goes on in our community. Oxbrita is not a pain medicine per se. But the hope and expectation is that by attacking the root cause of the disease, many of the most debilitating symptoms of sickle cell disease 
will stop or lessen. The FDA was so impressed with the clinical data submitted by GBT that the agency approved Oxbrita three months ahead of schedule. So tell me about what it was like when you guys realized this thing works. Well, this is a very remarkable situation. Uh, um, uh, and I won't go through all of the science, but I can say that in uh, drug discovery, we use models. And over the years, I've learned some models are useful and some models are useless. The sickle cell model is actually extraordinary in my view in that what you are doing is uh, taking mice and you genetically insert human hemoglobin. So these are transgenic animals. Right. So we've essentially replaced their mouse hemoglobin with human hemoglobin and we introduce the mutation. So we literally make mice that have sickle cell disease. And we could see that when we fed these mice this drug, uh, within days you can see the disease reversing. So that was an important clue that this would likely work. We also uh, were able to study just in test tubes that the hemoglobin will polymerize, and if you add this drug, you can very efficiently inhibit the polymerization. So you define, that, going define, all, define that term, please. It's the organizing. Oh, that's what you talk about putting the sword in the balloon, right, right? So if you can stop that, uh, again, the reference to HIV is a useful one. Mm -hmm. It's effectively you're killing the virus. Mm -hmm. uh, and we could see that in a test tube by looking at this, the formation of rods. We could look at it uh, in blood by seeing the cells sickle or being inhibited from sickling uh, with the addition of the drug. And ultimately, we could see it in animals. And as I think you know, now know, we've demonstrated this uh, can be safely achieved with this uh, medicine in humans as well now. And what would you say was the most emotional moment of this journey? I think um, there have been so many uh, that it's hard to pick one, but I would say that um, we went public on the first six patients. We gave this drug to six consecutive patients, and the data was so striking that we were able to take the, pay the company public, and the company immediately became worth more than $1.5 billion uh, on six patients. Uh, it's unusual that uh, uh, you could do that, but the data are that striking um, uh, in that if you look at the, the blood, you can see the sickle cells disappearing. If you look at uh, the blood also, you can see the evidence of red cell destruction uh, disappearing. In fact, we have some patients uh, that become completely normal. Their hemoglobins are completely normal. Their bilirubins are completely normal. The only way you could tell they have sickle cell disease would be to genotype them. Mm. Uh, those patients, in my view, uh, we have more work to do over time. I think those patients will, over time, be completely com protected from the disease. And the vision here is to actually take children when they're very young and they just begin to show evidence of sickling, put them on this therapy, reverse that, and keep them on the drug and keep them normal the whole life. So they'll have no, none of this cognitive issues, none of these cognitive issues, none of, none of the destruction of any of their organs. They'll be That is our expectation. And again, it would be like HIV. Children are born with HIV. Mm -hmm. Today, we put them on good therapy, and they will have a normal life expectancy. 
Thule has already started on Oxbrida, and Mom hopes that Deej might become eligible too if the FDA approves new indications. But right now, the drug at least gives Mom the peace of mind that Thule, and someday all of her daughters, her warriors, won't have to fight quite so hard to live a so-called normal life. And I remember when the drug got approved and everyone was excited um, because, you know, what we do here in the United States is not just for the United States. And I understand that, you know, this is a rare disease here, but it's a global issue. It affects millions around the world. So for us, um, Oxbrita is hope. It's, um, it's preservation of organs until the universal cure is found. It's, it's having options because, again, the disease affects everyone differently. It's important that we have options when it comes to care because one drug is not going to work for everyone. So Ted Love, uh, oh, I think you know, mm-hmm. Global Blood Therapeutics, um, he actually came out of retirement to go back and develop this drug. And, you know, I've talked to him and he's just so uh, over the moon about the success of the, of the drug. But talk a little bit about um, how it, its medicinal effect and what your hope is and how it changes the course of, of treatment for your daughters. Well, what's really exciting to me about Oxbrita is that it goes to the source of the disease and helping to keep the cells um, oxygenated. And so, um, in theory, if the cells are round and flexible and, you know, doing what they're supposed to do, then a lot of the complications that people experience due to sickle cell, you know, it's it's safe to say that those complications are going to uh, occur less frequently, if at all. So that that's what was really exciting for me. I'm just hoping that there will be more trials that open up to include more people within the sickle cell community, people like Deej, because right now Deej is on chronic transfusions, and hopefully that's, you know, Oxbrita may be used to, if not, um, lessen the number of transfusions that she that she receives and completely do, do away with it. So the drug has been a source of hope. It, it, you're happy that it's there, but it wasn't easy to get your daughter, was it? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it was not. We got denied a couple of times. By Medicaid? Medicaid, Georgia yes. Medicaid. Georgia Medicaid denied us. And, um, and, and what I, reason did they give for that denial? That it wasn't on, it wasn't one of the preferred drugs. I don't even know how they have a list. We barely had anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we had yeah, one really. drug. <laughs> the preferred drug so, is aspirin or something. Yeah. <laughs> That was that was the reason that they gave. And I remember um, when I found out that this was the third appeal, I said, well, then I need to write a letter. And so I reached out to the hospital and they were like, well, we're not, we've never sent a letter in with an appeal. I said, well, um, it's important for them to know that sickle cell affects everyone differently. And... What we have right now does not work for everyone. So you wrote this letter. You mm-hmm. got the hospital to sign on for the first time they've ever done this. And then what happened? Well, we got approved. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Sound effects. Uh, we got approved, and I found out later that Tuli was the first patient in Georgia, as far as public Georgia Medicaid, to be approved 
for Axe Writer. So um, that's exciting. And, you know, I have the letter available and I've um, let other parents know, listen, I have a template. If you get approved, whatever you do, do not give up. Just keep appealing mm-hmm. because they need to know that there is a need and that the patients are really wanting. If not, they're going to feel like the list is fine how it is. For patients and their families, the value of Oxbrita is a no-brainer. Addressing the underlying cause of sickle cell disease means addressing the organ damage that reduces the quality and length of a life. But GBT still has work ahead to make the product available widely here and abroad, especially with organizations like ICER scoffing at the drug's value. Even though GBT got a standing O from payers by pricing the drug lower than the median average for orphan drugs. So what about the uptake of this drug? What's the 100,000 people? How long is it going to take to get 100,000 people using this drug, do you think? Well, we don't know all of that. Uh, It's only been approved since uh, uh, November of 2019. The process of, of, uh, of educating physicians and patients is going very well. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a Facebook uh, for patients? We have all of the social media things. Mm-hmm. We have um, physicians that are speakers around the country. Uh, we have medical sales liaisons, and we have a field uh, uh, sales force of approximately 75 individuals uh, who are around the country doing all the educating, all the interaction. I think this is going to be an extremely uh, successful effort to get a large, large percentage of patients on this drug, uh, but that will take time. And the rate at which that um, occurs is something that obviously the market is very interested in, mm-hmm. uh, and we'll be providing data over the year to mm-hmm. show the progress. And can you talk about how much time and and investment of dollars it took to get to this point? Well, we were very lucky in that uh, the first thing we did worked. Mm-hmm. And that is, as you know, often not the case in sickle yeah, it's cell. It's usually 90% in failure. Development. Yeah. Um, but uh, despite that, I would say that we've raised in the range of $1.4 billion. Uh, and that was without paying for any failures. If we had had to pay for failures, that number could have easily gone up by twofold if right. we had to pay for significant failures. But it will probably end up saving the healthcare system uh, money in terms in terms of hospitalizations and and you know, organ failure. And so, talk a little bit about the the pharmacoeconomics of this drug in terms of what it will save society besides the pain and suffering that's 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 alleviated. The, the rest of us will all benefit from this as well, right? I'll, I'll start with an anecdote. Uh, we were actually meeting with. Uh, uh, some payers recently, and they asked us to explain how we arrived at the price that we set our we set for our drug. And uh, one of our vice presidents explained it, and literally, this was a group of payers stood up and applauded. Wow. They really appreciated the thoughtfulness uh, uh, that we put into setting the price. And then right after that, one of the individuals in the group said, "I have people in my." in my coverage plan that cost over a million dollars a year Mm. to care for their complications of sickle cell disease. So I'm excited to get those patients and all of my patients on this drug so that I can lower their cost and so that I can prevent other people from becoming individuals who are so sick that they require this. So um, some of the numbers that might be relevant to think about, 
a sickle cell patient is estimated to lose about $700,000 over their lifetime of income. Um, I know sickle cell patients that have literally lost dozens of jobs caring for their children Mm. who get sick periodically Mm. uh, with sickle cell disease. As I mentioned, uh, there's a very high rate of cognitive uh, brain function uh, loss even in the first decade so doing, of life. So you have special so education that's, costs? That's changing everything. Right. So this is a very expensive disease. Whether you're adding up the cost of caring for the multi-organ failure that results or whether you're uh, concerned about the, uh, if you will, the uh, secondary effects on individuals like parents that are losing jobs caring for their children or if you're concerned about the loss in income. Uh, so this is a very expensive disorder, mm-hmm. and we think that our price will ultimately uh, be net positive uh, for society. Our cost will so there's be net a, positive. There's a, uh, an outfit called the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, ICER. Um, this is uh, a lot of controversy around this organization because they make efforts to uh, decide uh, what drugs uh, should be, where the price should be. Um, have they looked at your drug yet? And are you worried that they may not calculate it correctly in bringing in all these factors? Well, we have actually interacted with ICER. They have begun a process to look at our drug and all the sickle cell drugs. And they've already issued a draft report, which essentially says that none of these drugs are worth it. Uh, And the alternative would be to just let these people continue to stroke, uh, have cognitive injury, and die in their early 40s. I think that is an egregious conclusion uh, to sit around and conclude that these individuals uh, are not worth uh, the cost that we are commonly paying for drugs. In fact, one of the things that we were very thoughtful of is that we wanted to price our drug below the median cost of orphan drugs, uh, and we did. So to conclude that sickle cell patients uh, are not worth the median cost of drugs, uh, I don't know where their capitalist comes from, but it's something that we obviously will not be deterred by. Our company is about innovating uh, to help patients with grievous blood disorder starting with sickle cell disease. And we will take a very significant part of the revenues that we generate to put back into research. Uh, We're also putting a lot of effort into patient support. So a significant amount of our cost uh, is going toward helping the patients directly that are on our drug. Uh, We'll be giving away a lot of free drug. We need to pay for that uh, in some mechanism. And we need to also be working on ways to get this drug to patients all around the world, in many cases in very low resource countries. So we and have you've a already lot of started that do. process. You've been turning, talking to the World Health Organization. Talk, tell a little bit about you. You just started this process, I think, of trying to figure that out, how to get it into the African continent and elsewhere. Actually, we've been working on it for years. Uh-huh. Uh, we started working on this even before the FDA approval. However, realistically, um, we're going to need a lot of partners to do this. For a small company of 350 people, uh, this is a very big lift. Uh, so we'll need to collaborate with, as you said, Jim, organizations like WHO, the World Bank, and we've started that. In fact, I was in D.C. last Friday meeting with a group of such individuals focused on eradicating suffering from sickle cell disease on a global basis. So we're engaged, and our drug will be available on a global basis. Due to the lack of healthcare infrastructure and treatment options in Liberia, 
My pillar says sickle cell disease isn't openly discussed. She's planning to visit her native country in the coming months to start that dialogue and encourage people to step out of the shadows. So you immigrated to this country from Liberia. Do you still have family there? Yes, um, I I still have family there. My my grandmother, my mother's mother, is still in Liberia, and uh, most of my family is at least on my mom's side is still in Liberia. And my dad just went back to Liberia. Um, he's going to be there for a while. So yeah, I still have a mm-hmm. lot of family there. And do you want to? Uh, do you have thoughts about how to help people with? sickle cell in not only Liberia, but the entire African continent? Yes, absolutely. And uh, for me, this is bigger than, of course, my kids were the inspiration for doing what I do. But um, it's so it's so much bigger because um, Liberia is a heavily malaria country. And, you know, the correlation between malaria and sickle cell um, is... You know, uh, it is said <laughs> that the sickle gene came about because of sure. malaria. It prote- it's a protection against malaria, and then right. this happens to be a, a side effect of that. Exactly. And so um, my country went through 14 years of civil war, and right now the health care system is very bad. Um, and I just, I am haunted many of nights by the fact that there are people in remote villages who have no access to care, who have sickle cell disease, who probably don't know they have sickle cell disease, and they're in all this pain. And just, I want to go back to Liberia to help bring them out of the shadows. But I feel like in Liberia, I'm going to have to go a little further because there's nothing when it comes to sickle cell awareness. There's no way to screen. There's no data. There's no, um, I don't even know how many people have the disease. So I am literally going to need to start the conversation so people can know that, okay, maybe I don't have to be in hiding anymore. If she can talk about it, I'll, I'll say that I have it. Or just don't feel so alone. It's clear from talking to Ted that GBT is a real labor of love for him and for so many members of his team. They've been given an opportunity to alleviate suffering in communities and to work in a mission-focused environment that values individuals of all backgrounds for the unique experiences they bring to the table. For Ted, diversity and inclusion aren't about counting the number of women and minorities on staff, even though there are lots. It's about taking the blinders off and unlearning the social conditioning that leads to erroneous conclusions about who has the right stuff to lead. We've got about 350 employees. Uh, More than half of our employees are people of color, uh, and more than half of our employees are female. Um, uh, And that has created an extraordinary workforce. It's a workforce where people are really good. I say that all the time. You cannot get a job at GPT unless you're really good at what you do and you're willing to work really hard uh, and that you're really passionate about the mission for the company. But it's also a company where people 
have high expectations of each other. And that includes how we treat each other, even though we may be different. We may be different in terms of how we look. We may be different in terms of our gender. We may be different in terms of our sexual orientation. But those differences are irrelevant because we have come together to focus on solving serious problems. And we know that we are all good and we know that we all work hard. And it's created an exceptional uh, work environment. But it's also one that's very diverse. Uh, and uh, I think that diversity has been an enormous uh, source of strength for us. Some people see having a diverse workforce as the right thing to do. Um, but it's more than that, right? I mean, it, it, it is advantageous economically and scientifically to bring different perspectives to the work that you do. So give us a sense of how you experience that. Well, I've always had the belief that talent is likely randomly distributed. Uh, and if, if that is in fact true, then your, uh, your workforce should look much like the community from which you're drawing your workforce. And if it's not, you are probably not getting the best talent in my conclusion. Um, and I think that in part our insistence on excellence has driven us to really, really focus on what does it mean to be excellent? And we look um, ultimately at that and almost nothing else. So we don't really focus on trying to recruit women. And that's resulted in us having more than 50% women in our company. Um, we don't you know, focus on recruiting people of color per se, uh, but we do focus on getting the best chemists, the best biologists, the best at everything. And that's resulted in a company that's more than 50% people of color. And which is unusual because um, uh, according to the survey that we took, um, the findings show that only 15% of biotech executives and 14% of board members are people of color. So part of the challenge is not only bringing them into the workforce, but it's having them climb the ladders into the C-suites and onto the board where there's a real, there is a real shortage. What, what should bio be doing? What should the industry be doing? And what are we doing in that regard? But I think we're doing the right things. I, I do uh, recognize that you're, if you're drawing from a pool that doesn't have the candidates, it could be more challenging. Uh, but I think also we need to open up our mind and think more creatively about what does it really mean to be the best. Um, uh, uh, and we've found that by really focusing uh, on uh, characteristics that uh, are measurable, we end up with the best population. Um, I'll give you an example. Our head of legal is a, is a woman. Uh, our head of manufacturing is a woman. Our head of our vice president of biology is a woman. We have we have women distributed through our through our company, and none of that has been me going out saying I want a woman in these positions. It's simply been when I did a job search and I looked around, the best candidate in my view turned out to be a woman that I had worked with at Genentech. So we hired her as our general counsel. Our head of manufacturing had been a young woman that I got to know at Onyx, thought she was exceptional. Um, and uh, we brought her on, and she's done a tremendous job, and she's become our number one head of manufacturing. I think she's 
incredibly talented. So we've done this really by focusing on uh, who are the best candidates and looking beyond some of the biases, I think. I think a lot of bias, unfortunately, leads people to incorrectly assume that uh, sometimes people of color or women are not the best candidates. So uh, earlier you said that uh, you were lucky to uh, that your first project um, worked. Uh, I'm, I'm beginning to think maybe it wasn't all luck. It might have something to do with the uh, quality of the people that you've hired, uh, keeping uh, um, bias uh, at the door. And, um, and what you've accomplished here is really quite extraordinary. And uh, regardless of what Icer says about whether it's worth it. Uh, I think there are people in this country and all of their kids to come uh, who are going to benefit immeasurably from uh, richer lives, pain-free lives, successful lives. And then uh, when you end up figuring out how to export this to uh, the millions of the people in the other con- uh, continents, uh, pretty cool thing, Ted. It's really cool. And that's why we exist, Jim. All right. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. I was at one large biotech where in conversations on development planning, I'd hear things like, oh, she's got a hus- her husband's got a great job. It wouldn't be a good time to move her. Or, you know, she's just had a baby. It wouldn't be a good time to move her. Um, that is not appropriate. You have got to ask the employee and see what they want to, to do. Uh, so we need to stamp out uh, unconscious bias. Uh, and we need to make sure that for uh, senior roles, um, and every role, frankly, there is a diverse candidate panel and diverse interviewers. So our next guest is Helen Torley. She's the president and CEO of Halzyme. It's a San Diego biotech company. And importantly for this conversation, she leads Bio's Workforce Development, Diversity, and Inclusion Committee. And she's driving an industry-wide conversation about how we can better serve diverse patient populations. So welcome to I Am Bio. Thank you so much. I read um, a book that Hillary Clinton wrote, and she said that in her experience, um, when uh, she would offer, offer someone uh, an advancement, uh, very frequently the guys would say, yeah, I can do that. And the women would say, I think I can do that. So that's, uh, that comes from a long history that starts in childhood, doesn't it? It, it does. And, you know, Sheryl Sandberg, I think, wrote very well about that in her book, Lean, Lean In. And I can't tell you the number of people who call me and ask for advice about getting on a board, as an example, uh, women who want to get on the board and other diverse candidates who want to get on a board um, who say, I'm not ready yet, but, and I say, why aren't you ready? Uh, you're not going to get the job if you do not stand back and say, what will you bring to a board and sell that? You know, there's so much self-censoring um, that happens and mm-hmm. um, it's all about a mindset. Mm-hmm. And so diverse candidates um, can often focus on the gaps and not the strengths. You've got to focus on your strengths and sell yourself. There are People who think of diversity as, um, well, we should do this thing because it's it's right it's the right thing to do. We're going to do this to benefit the the women, the people of color, uh, et cetera, um, the minorities. Um, but that's really, which is a good thing, and it's important to do all of that as a matter of social justice. But it, but that is, it, it, you're not doing just them a favor, right? The companies, uh, there's, there's data that shows show that employers do better when their workforce is diverse, right? Yeah, I think about it, Jim. We, biotech is at the, the, the forefront of innovation. Uh, that means that what we're doing has never been done before. That means we're solving some of the world's greatest problems. I and mean, some of the diseases that were death, uh, uh, death sentences when I was in medical school 
have good cures. Um, so we know that um, to do that, you need to have the best thinking, the best different thinking. You cannot just follow a path. It's going to be new ideas for innovation. And there's study after study that shows if you've got diversity of experience, diversity of background, it uh, dramatically increases the innovation. Uh, and importantly, it drives directly to business success. Companies with diverse leadership, either at the C-suite or on boards, um, have been demonstrated to show better shareholder return, better revenue growth, um, etc. So let's talk about the bio survey. Tell us a little bit about whom we surveyed and what did we learn from that? the first of our surveys to set a baseline to understand in small and large biotech um, how they approach diversity today and how diverse we are as an industry. It showed that um, we still are about 30% functional leadership female uh, and about um, uh, 16% board members. So uh, that obviously is well behind the goals that we set, so we know what we need to do. Um, from a racial perspective, um, the, the statistics were slightly worse, actually, um, with the uh, board membership, as an example, at just 12%. But if you dig in between uh, and down into the details there, um, the uh, shocking fact that was black representation um, in the biotech industry and leadership is, is very, very low, in the low uh, single-digit percentages, mm. with the, the rest of the representation mostly coming coming from Asian and Latino members. So um, we, we've got uh, a lot of focus that we need to have there. Um, very few companies um, collect LGBTQ statistics. Only 13% of companies did. So we didn't get it's a, a good tricky thing handle to do, on right? that. Because I think there's a question about whether, you, will my employees feel comfortable if I'm asking them about their gender orientation, right? It, it, it is. And, and, and companies like Biogen, actually, I, I can tell you, we've learned a lot from their, them. They're a member of um, Bio and um, have over the years done a lot of work to um, make sure that within their organization, that is a dialogue that can happen. So um, you can make a change, uh, but I think most companies haven't started that yet. There's a lot more we can do as an industry there. So we, 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 we know we've got work to do. Well, let's talk about that work because we, we as you just noted, the survey was in some regards dismal in terms of the representation of, of African-Americans and females and leadership. So what are the kinds of projects that we're going to undertake now to try to help companies overcome that? Yes. Uh, last year, we actually launched um, two key initiatives that we think are going to be very helpful towards that. Um, the first one um, really focuses on how do we bring up more um, diverse candidates to be the uh, leaders in the C-suite of our biotech organizations. And that's called the Bio Toolkit. And it makes available tools on the bio website that lets you, if you want to talk about how you do succession planning, how you want to do about development planning, how you want to do sponsorships, how you want to do a wage gap analysis, all of those materials as to how uh, the leading companies in the industry look at that and have done it effectively are available for free. So uh, we really do encourage everybody to go onto that um, um, website and look at the toolkit. Um, there's just very generous donation from all of these companies. Um, so th that will help get more diverse representation into the C-suite. Um, for the board, um, what we did was um, partner with a group called Boardlist, and this is called the Bio Board List, where at the moment we have about 150 diverse candidates who are in the board list and these are curated list of candidates who are ready now uh, to be on boards with um, searchable by their experiences um, and nominated by a bio member how are um, we finding them from um, they are they're, they're coming from the the bio members and other people who are nominating them and some people are actually self-nominating and uh, so as an example if a company is wanting to have a new board member who's a financial expert but has a particular expertise in Japan 
um, they would be able to call up bio and say, do you have anyone in the bio board list who's got this type of experience? And we would be able to provide the, the names to them so they could put them into their candidate pool. And data shows if you have a candidate pool where you've got diverse candidates, 50% of the time you'll pick the best candidate who also happens to be the diverse candidate. And that's really what we're trying to do is to expand these candidate pools so that we have more diversity there. I looked at some of these uh, resumes and um, you know supporting statements for the candidates, Jim. They are superb. And I will definitely go there, the, the next board member I am looking for, because um, it, it, there is a hidden group of diverse candidates who just aren't in today's networks, who aren't being considered for roles, who will be superb. We call this Right Mix Matters and talk about uh, how we came up with that name, the Right Mix Matters. In our busy days, and particularly for CEOs who are focused on business matters, reimbursement, um, politics, all the stuff, uh, Jim, you spend your day on, having the attention on diversity, it's hard. You've got to break through the noise. Uh, And so this was the uh, campaign tagline that we came up with. Uh, It's true, the Right Mix does matter. It does, as we talked about, drive innovation and performance. And so we wanted to campaign around that and we'll we'll be continuing with waves of information to support that the right mix matters and keep it forefront in the CEOs. This is something CEOs can change. The CEOs can change the dimensions and and the, uh, the what their C-suite looks like and CEOs can have a high impact on what the board looks like. So uh, we want to keep this in front of them. The right mix matters and every um, CEO should be focusing on it as part of their priorities. Exciting to watch that success grow. Um, thank you for your leadership in all of this. It's been it's been really terrific, and uh, uh, it's good to me that the biotechnology innovation organization is not simply about um, technological and scientific innovations, but also innovation in the world of, uh, of diversity. That's Thank great. You. Thank you so much, Jim. Thank you. Well, that's all for today. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast player, follow us, and share with your friends. Our next episode will take you inside the biotechnology industry's work to deliver a treatment and a vaccine that can outwit the novel coronavirus. As people sequester themselves in their homes and worry about the health risks and economic impacts, it's all hands on deck for biotech researchers working to bring next generation technology to bear to solve the worst pandemic in a century. The great battle has begun. It's biotech versus coronavirus on the next I Am Bio.